Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. Hey, everybody. I thought before I start this podcast with Steve Byrne, I would share something really briefly with you that was an experience that I had that I was really, really blown away by. This weekend, Dave Chappelle was gracious enough to invite myself and my son to his show at Radio City Music Hall. And so we flew into New York. We went to see the show and backstage afterwards. And I just want to share with you that if you have not seen this show, if you have not bought a ticket for one of these Radio City Music Hall shows or any of the shows that are happening across the world or the country with Dave, you must go. You must find a way to get a ticket. It doesn't matter if you don't have the money. Figure out a way to get the money. Because what I saw and what my son saw this weekend was a game changer in terms of any kind of entertainment. It was just a spectacular, extraordinary experience that myself, my son, and 6,000 other people experienced in a way that I cannot even remotely try to explain to you. So go to see the show. What my son experienced through that show, and not only Dave Chappelle, but the guests that he had on, which were the cast members of Saturday Night Live, was groundbreaking. And what they had to say before he went on, and what he had to say in the hour of comedy that he delivered was like an exclamation point of how to enjoy a show, how to learn from a show, how to grow from a show, how to experience a show, and how to look at the world in a way that has never been looked upon before by a comedian. And this man, who I've had a relationship with since probably half of my life, 
is a person that I will never, ever forget working with for the eight years that I managed him and my relationship thereafter. It's something that I'm so grateful for. And the time that he spent with my son backstage was time that I could see through my son's eyes completely took his view of the world and spun it upside down and created a level of understanding and a level of knowledge and a level of thought process on what he needs to do to get to the next level of his young life. It was incomprehensible to me. And so please, please, if you do anything, wherever he is playing, figure out a way to get there and see the show. And like I saw through my son, and like I saw through myself afterwards, this show and this event was extraordinary, and it was life-changing. And if it did that for my son and for me and for those 6,000 people, I guarantee you it will do it for you. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard, live from Montreal. So exciting, doing podcasts here in my spare time, having a great time. If you haven't been up to Montreal, you got to come up here. It's incredible. Have fun. Enjoy yourself. I know I am. And today, I'm very, very excited because I get the opportunity to interview Steve Byrne. I managed him for a long time, and he's a real special guy and has a lot of things to say about the business and life that you're really going to enjoy. And before I get to it, I just want to thank you guys again for everything. There is no way that I will ever stop thanking you. I'm humbled, grateful, and what you've done for the show, I can never repay you for. It's just been the light of my life, and I know it sounds corny, but... I will always be grateful to all of you that support the show, subscribe to the show, pass it on to your friends, and say wonderful things about what kind of an impact it's had on your lives, these interviews. So, when I look at Steve Byrne, as I always do in these podcasts, I never know what I'm going to say, and when I sit across from him, I think of a lot of different things. But the main thing I think of is adversity and changing the pattern of how you do things despite the adversity and the setbacks, despite things that happen that are unexplainable. And I think I'll go back and just share with you, when I first saw Steve Byrne, he wasn't the comedian he is today. He was doing some props, he was doing material he wasn't proud of. But he always had a way to go on stage and make an impact and get the crowd going in a way very few others were able to do. 
And throughout his career and his successes, he kept to himself as much as possible. But he was friendly with people. He hung out with people. But he didn't really have many friends. And he tried to keep to himself and figure out a way to navigate through the business and learn step by step how to do things by watching, studying, learning from examples. This is a guy that was sweeping floors at Caroline's during the day and sitting in the back of the room and watching great comics night after night. As Royce Clayton once told me long ago on the podcast, study greatness, imitate greatness, become great. And when he got the opportunity, he got on stage and he never looked back. And he kept fighting and working and doing the best he could and creating great bits that were better and better than he used to do. And his act evolved into a situation where he was doing comedy that was getting him more and more jobs, more and more television appearances. Yet, in his greatest accomplishment, writing and creating and starring and executive producing his own show, Sullivan and Son, on TBS for three years and having what he wanted, creating a relationship with Vince Vaughn, who was also an executive producer, being in a situation where you went every day to work and you were working with a great group of people, a show that was going the distance, yet never seemingly feeling like he could get on any single late night talk show to promote it in three years, never being able to get on the podcast he wanted to get on to promote it, never getting the high end stuff, even though he was on a national television sitcom as the lead for three years. Think back, everybody. Think in the last 10 years, how many stand-up comedians do you know of that have had a show that was on the air for three years. You can count them on half a hand. Yet he had everything going for him, including a Netflix special, yet couldn't get what he wanted on the publicity side. And that's a major thing when you're doing something you love and everything is going the way you want. There's always, there always seems to be something that comes along that just straightens you up a little bit and lets you know that no matter what you do, there's always going to be something that happens. Truly, life and our careers are like a whack-a-mole game. You get one thing going, the sitcom, yet another mole pops up. That's another problem or another issue in your life. And you have a choice. You can take it and you can keep it inside and let it eat away with you or bother you. Or you can keep moving forward and doing great, extraordinary work and not worrying about whether you're recognized or not. Not worrying about who's judging your career or who thinks you're worthy. Just keep going forward, doing the great work, believing in yourself. And it doesn't matter if certain factions don't believe in you as much as you believe in yourself. Because every day when you do great work, you'll always be in a situation where people will realize that you're one step ahead of them. 
because you're on television. You're an executive producer. You're a star. You're friends with Vince Vaughn, and you're not friends with him because he can help you. You're friends with him because one of the funniest, most unbelievable, huge box office stars in the world believes in you personally and professionally and doesn't give a fuck what the publicists say or the late night shows say. All they care about is the work you do and the relationships that you have with them. So as I look at Steve Byrne and I think of how things should be and what will be helpful for anyone listening to this podcast, keep going out there writing, creating, doing great work. And if you do get a chance to get something, a dream that you've always wanted, but things don't always go the way you want them to on the set, don't let it take you down. Keep fighting, keep creating, keep pushing forward. And if you do that, I can guarantee you, you'll have the kind of career that Steve Byrne has had. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. All right. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Without further ado, we should introduce our guest today, which I am really, really happy is here. So, so happy. Steve Byrne. Let's get to it after I'm done with this intro. We'll wake him up and then we'll start with the podcast. Steve Byrne has risen through the ranks of the comedy world to become one of the industry's most innovative and sought-after performers. Hailing from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Steve was born to a Korean mother and an Irish father. His unique background gave him the base comedic material for his first television show, entitled Sullivan and Son, which aired for three seasons on TBS. Byrne just released his fourth one-hour stand-up special entitled Tell the Damn Joke in early 2017, and he previously released his third comedy special, Comedy Champion, on Netflix in May of 2014. His popular podcast, The Gentleman's Dojo, premiered in late August 2015 on Bill Burr and Al Madrigal's All Things Comedy and is a passion project for Steve along with his co-host, Gary Cannon. He's currently in post-production of a documentary he's directing on comedian magician The Amazing Jonathan entitled Always Amazing. He began his career slugging it out in the comedy clubs of New York City and making the esteemed comedy seller his home club all the while. In 2006, he won TBS's Stand Up or Sit Down Comedy Challenge, and his hilarious stand-up has been seen on TBS's Conan, ABC's Jimmy Kimmel Live, CBS's The Late Late Show, BET's Comic View, and he's appeared on NBC's The Tonight Show a total of 10 times. In 2008, Burns' first one-hour special, Steve Burns' Happy Hour, premiered on Comedy Central, and the second hour, The Burn Identity, premiered in 2010. 
a true international comedian, Byrne has performed to sold-out crowds around the world and has been a featured comic at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal, Toronto, and Chicago, HBO's U.S. Comedy and Arts Festival in Las Vegas, and the Can West Comedy Fest in Vancouver. Byrne has also been part of several national comedy tours, including the Jameson Comedy Tour, Vince Vaughn's Wild West Comedy Tour, the Kims of Comedy, the Camel Cigarette Sin City Tour, and his own national MySpace Comedy Tour. Byrne even had the honor of opening for popular music acts such as Kanye West, Mariah Carey, and many more, and annually entertains the troops all over the world. He also appeared in the hit comedies The Dilemma and Couples Retreat. All right. I've been waiting for this moment (laughs) for a long, long, long time. I am very excited. Please welcome my guest today, Steve Byrne. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This is amazing to sit down with you. I have so many feelings inside of me (laughs) sitting across from you. Yeah. And I'm sure you have some as well. I honestly, I have, when I look at you, I, like my gut initial knee jerk reaction is just respect. I respect the hell out of you. I really do. You you took me on when, uh, it was very early in my career. And when I first signed with you, you know, I'm just this young comic in New York and you had everybody and you're the guy, you know, uh, you got the keys to the kingdom. And I remember I was in blockbuster video. And you were at Blockbuster, you were renting a movie, and you were with a stunner. And I, I, I was with my brother, and I go, that's Barry Katz. He's, he's like the biggest manager. I'm, one day I'm going to work with him. And I think like it took another year or two, and then, uh, and then uh, yeah, we got to work together. It was great. I want to share with the audience the first <laughs> video that I ever saw of you. And the first time I saw you, and people should know if you are in any profession how you can evolve and Mm -hmm. you don't have to stay a certain way. You can realize where you have to go by looking at the landscape. Mm -hmm. For instance, in comedy, my mentor in Boston was a guy named Chance Langton. And Chance Langton was a singer-comedy guy. Mm -hmm. But he used to kill And he got his own room in Boston called Play It Again Sam's. And he hired me to be his doorman and coached me on being a stand-up. But he was a guitar comic. Mm -hmm. I have no musical skills at all. And then when I started getting more contacts in the business, I would reach out to Robert Morton at Letterman. And I would ask him to come out and let me do a showcase for him. I'd fly him out. I'd put him up. Mm -hmm. And... Robert Morton had this expression, not even an expression, he had rules Mm -hmm. for Letterman. And he said to me very specifically and sternly, I want to put comedians on stage and on the Letterman show that don't swear, don't do drug humor, don't do moisture humor, spit, mucus, menstruation, Mm -hmm. sperm, don't do sex humor, and don't do props, and doesn't do musical parody comedy. If you put anybody on the show that does any of these things, Mm -hmm. I will never come back again. Mm -hmm. But if you put the right people on, I will always come back. And so I had to tell my mentor that I couldn't put him on the showcase. Uh. 
at clubs that he helped me get into. Yeah. But that forced him to start doing straight stand-up, mm-hmm. and he gave up the guitar completely. Right. And then he got on the showcase, and he did really well. He didn't get the show. Yeah. He did really well. When I first saw you, mm-hmm. you were doing a kind of puppet thing at the end e- with this e- Anaheim Angels rally monkey thing <laughs> that you were working with. Yeah. And the crowd went fucking crazy. Yeah. And I watched you, and I knew I wanted to represent you, which sounds really strange. And to anybody listening would say, well, that proves that Barry doesn't know anything about comedy because he wanted to represent somebody who was working with a rally monkey at the end. (laughs) But what was happening before that Mm -hmm. is that you had this thing where the audience was all in Mm -hmm. to you. There's certain performers in the beginning where they go on and you can tell that they've, I know a lot of people won't buy into this, but in another life they had mastered the skill of getting a group of people attentive and responsive. Mm -hmm. It's normally something you have to work on for years and years and years, but there are a select few performers Mm -hmm. that are able to go on from the beginning and just galvanize a crowd. And I would notice this long ago with George Lopez, the late John Panette, Dane Cook, mm-hmm. Frankie Pace in mm-hmm. New York, yeah, who was a prop comic, Joe Coy, another guy mm-hmm. who, in the beginning, people were in. Mm-hmm. There were certain comedians that went on and an 18-wheel truck could fall through the ceiling and you wouldn't know if it was in the back that it happened because you are riveted. All of those people I mentioned might not have had the material that they had later on in their careers. Right. But in the beginning, they were able to do that. And I noticed you were one of those guys, and there was nobody even could compare to the level of the audience response that you got. And so I guess I have a weird <laughs> question here before yeah. I go on and talk sure, about yeah. it. Did you know that something was happening, that you had some gift, not necessarily the material in the beginning, but some gift where you went on and for some reason they were eating out of your hands and you didn't even understand why and the other comics struggled with that? Yeah, it's it's funny you bring that up because I was talking to uh, Jessica Kirsten. We've been doing this ethnic show here at Just for Laughs and, um, you know, in front of you know, club soda, I guess. I love Jessica. She's amazing. She's a killer. And, and, uh, we're in front of 500 people a night at club soda and it's just such a great venue. And we were walking to a gig the other night and she goes, you know, we were complimenting each other and having fun working with each other. And she said, uh, she said, you're, you're a giver. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And she goes, she goes, I can always tell when somebody's on stage the performer could be a taker and they're just there to selfishly take what they want from the audience. But if you're a giver and she was saying that in her mind, very few comics are givers where you go on stage as a performer and you're there to give as opposed to take from the audience. And I, I, I never heard of it put that way, but I completely agree with her because I think when, when I go up, I, I truly do want to, I, I want to make sure the audience has a great time. I, I, I really, am giving um i've gotten more comfortable 
uh, on stage over the years in terms of knowing how to do that, um, you know, even with evolving my comedy and writing more, <laughs> which I didn't, I, w I was more of a performer when I was younger, but, but yeah, I, I think I've always had from day one until today, I, I, I've just had this desire, I think, to, uh, to give more than take from the audience. And I, I think that that plays into that. Hey, everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. And so those early nights when you were going on and you know some of what you're doing based on what you've seen of the comics you respect mm -hmm. is going in the right path to get you where you want to go. Mm -hmm. And you know some of the stuff you're doing is designed <laughs> to just get off stage with the crowd going crazy yeah. that you can't get from the other stuff you're working on. Mm -hmm. What was the moment that happened when you said... I know this stuff kills. I know I'm getting a better response than everybody mm -hmm. else. But today is the last day I am doing this bit. Yeah, I. it's so funny because you're making me remember all these memories I had in New York City. And I remember I, I used to have this Bruce Lee kung fu bit. I, I'm sure that you know. <laughs> so of course, it was, it was a killer. My ace in the hole. And, and I remember, I think it was, I think it was Norton. Jim Norton that said, he goes, he goes, you know, in another year or two, you won't even be doing that joke. And I was like, no way. I, that's my, the greatest joke I ever wrote, you know? And then I did a, a Comedy Central Presents and I did that joke and it, I closed on it. And then I was like, you know, then you learn, it's like, oh shit, I got to start writing more because you got to do the next TV gig or what, what happens when you get the next special? And I think it was that moment that I was like, i I got to start writing and not just doing the same 15 minutes in New York city where you're trying to get laid after all your sets and, you know, <laughs> trying to be a, you know, a little superstar and uh big fish in a small pond. So yeah, I, I think after that first comedy central presents is when I was like, all right, I gotta, I gotta start writing now. <laughs> and a big part of the scene in New York city as a male comic it's almost like the antithesis of the movie Dogfight, if you remember that movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. River Phoenix, the premise of the movie. It was a competition to see how quickly 
you could sleep with the worst looking girl in that town. Mm -hmm. But in New York City, between the comics working every night, it's a competition to find out who's going to sleep with the best looking woman as soon as possible. Yeah. And it's something that's unspoken, but it is the fabric of the male comedy scene there. You do not go out if you are single Mm -hmm. without the thought of how do I (laughs) navigate through Godfrey and all these different comedians who are working there and be able to get somebody to come home with me it's so funny because i was just i just had lunch uh with robert kelly and he was telling me about this memory he had where he and keith robinson after a set met these two girls and they're upstairs at the comedy cell at the olive tree cafe and they're having a blast these girls are into him and then he sees he sees godfrey and i walking over to the table and, and so Keith and Keith and Bobby just looked at each other and go, we got no shot. Let's just go. <laughs> so they got up and, and walked out. I guess Godfrey and I hung out with them that whole night. But yeah, I mean, look, when you're 23, 24, which I was at the time, and I spent seven years in New York City, I was single the whole time. It was just, it's the greatest because you're, you know, I never kissed a girl until I graduated high school. I, I got my diploma and I, I kissed a girl. And then in college, I, I was a slow burn, you know. You know, I was really definitely insecure, but I think uh, I gained a lot of security in, in, in doing stand-up. But then when you're at the comedy cellar, you're at the hottest club in the city. It was just like all the girls from NYU were there and, you know, just there were so many single good-looking girls in New York that, that, that I'm sure still go there. But at that time, it was just like... You're on stage, you're on for 15 minutes, you have a great set, and then you wait for them to come out, out out in the street. It's like, hey, you want to get a drink? And these girls just saw you on stage with Dave Chappelle or Chris Rock or Seinfeld or Robin Williams or whoever it might be, and you're part of their fun night, and the fun can keep going. It's like as much fun as it was for them, it was, it was a blast for me, but... I was always of the mindset, and this is what differ, differentiated me from the other guys, and they always shit on me. They always bagged on me, all of them, because they cut right to the chase of like, we're going to get out of here, we're going to fuck, whatever, we're going to bang. I was always, I was always, and I, I was just up for a good time, and if I hung out with a girl, and we hung out till six in the morning, and nothing happened, I had a great night with a great girl, and Maybe I'll see you again. Maybe I won't. But I'd rather hang out with a a great girl and have a great conversation than <laughs> watch all the animals at that club just viciously try to get laid. I was always trying to have a good time, but I, I'd love to have a great time with a great girl. Yeah, a giver. I, a I, I'm a giver. Yeah, I'm not a taker. I was a giver. Yeah. Um, Did you ever feel like at six o'clock in the morning the girl was actually thinking to herself? What the fuck? I mean, doesn't this guy even want to sleep with me? Is this me? guy going mean, to fuck me? Is this guy going to fuck me? What's happening here? Yeah. I think even like the waitresses at the at the place with pancakes, like, are you going to fuck this girl? Get the fuck out of here. What are you doing? Um, I would rather spend time at a diner or wherever where they were close the place down than be intimate because the intimacy, a lot of things come with that. And 
I'm a guilt-ridden person. So yeah. if I end up sleeping with somebody, I think to myself, oh, my God, they're going to want more. They're going to want to hang out with me more. I don't, I don't think I can hang out more. Yeah. I would rather just talk. That way I get that intimacy, but I don't get the physical intimacy. Yeah, I think that's where we differ. <laughs> Because I look, you know, I was always always up for the hang. But if things got intimate, it's like, great. Um, That was always the goal. But yeah, um, I I was down to hang. But I was also like, I I would always find something in every girl I hung out with where it's like, maybe this could be something. Maybe this could be something great. I I just always was optimistic um, with girls I hung out with. And every girl I've ever dated, I'm still friends with and stuff. So, you know. What is it about love? It's like you get in a prop plane or a little jet or whatever it is. You get in, you fly. It's a great experience. And then mm. <laughs> you got to stop flying Malaysian airlines. I think is what you got to stop doing. Stop getting on that plane. <laughs> but then, but then <laughs> you somehow survive the plane crash. You dust your clothes off. You're limping out of the plane, and you're like. Where's another airport? <laughs> please let me get upgraded. And then you'd crash again. You do like, it again. Let me find the next airplane. Please get me on it. But you will constantly be looking for the next terminal, the next gate, no matter what terminal, happens. Yes, yeah. Terminal. Always. Why is that? Look, I, I, th- I can only speak for myself selfishly, but um, I, I was single for such a long time, and I had, I, I, I had so much fun, but. The minute I met my wife, it just, everything just stopped and clicked. I was just like, that's it. I'm done. I literally, the the first night I met her, I said, uh, you know, to myself, I was like, I remember saying, I'm done. I'm, I'm going to pursue this girl. Well, a woman normally knows in five minutes when she meets a guy, if she's going to be with him for a long time. Did she know? No. Which is unflattering to hear when you're, because I've always been like, you know, the minute I met you, I, I just knew. And she's like, it just took me a bit. But she had just broken up with a guy that had uh, cheated on her and she was going through some stuff. So I think the last thing she even was thinking about was a relationship. What was it about her that you can tell me that was different from every single girl that you met up to that point that you knew in five minutes? Well, look. Apart from her being just stunning, I, I've always, even to this day, I'll FaceTime her and we've been together for 10 years and I just, there's times I'm just like, God, she's so beautiful and I'm so lucky. Um, but she was so grounded, so grounded. I think she's very a very balanced person and she's extremely secure in herself. So if I, again, if I'm out last night, like I was five, six in the morning with comics drinking and getting bad food and I don't call her and I sleep till four in the afternoon, she wouldn't even bat an eye. And and this is from day one. I mean, she'd be like, Hey, how you doing? How's it going? And, and not like, where were you last night? It, it was like one of the first girls I dated that wasn't like, where were you last night? Why didn't you call? She was just always like, cool. What about if she was out till six in the morning, <laughs> she was, slept till four, <laughs> didn't call you? How would you be? Um, I think, only because of her, I'd feel completely comfortable. And, and you know, when we were first starting to date, um, yeah, she'd, she'd go out with her girlfriends and have fun. And there were times where I didn't hear from her, and I, I just didn't assume anything. I just felt she always made me feel secure, and I, I, I think I, in turn, made her feel secure. And it was the first time, like, where a girl wasn't, like, accusing you of cheating. It's like, I, I don't want to violate that, so I won't. It's like some pimp shit. It's like some mind mind games, but I don't think she's doing it purposely. I remember one time I was on a date at a restaurant and the girl goes to the bathroom and 
the hostess comes over, Israeli woman, mm. and starts being aggressive with me, flirting. Yeah. And then when she saw the girl coming back, she left. And then when the girl went to the bathroom at the very end of the night again, she came over and nice. I, I said, what are you doing? I'm on a date here. <laughs> yeah. And she said, oh, don't worry. I only sleep with black guys. All right. I said, why is that? She says, because there's no bullshit. They just walk straight up to you. They say, do you want to fuck or you don't want to fuck? Yeah. Are we going to go back or are we not going to go back? White guys like you, they navigate around. They're always talking, you know, this and that. And sometimes a girl just wants to get down to business. Fuck, this girl's my mentor. I got to go <laughs> find this chick. She's fucking awesome. <laughs> I just, I can't bring myself because I saw it so many nights at the cellar where guys are very direct with girls. I just, I, I, to me, it just feels dirty. It, it, then it's just like, it's just like, I don't know what, 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 it is deep down inside somebody that makes them just go, you want to fuck? And then two minutes later in an alley fucking. It's like, that's crazy to me. It's absolutely crazy. I want to have a nice time. I, I don't know. Call, is that, am I unhealthy? Because I think that that's normal. But so many comics are like the complete opposite. <laughs> you want to make love in an alley? Yeah, do you want to make love in a, that's crazy. But that's how I would say it, I guess. And I will use protection. <laughs> um, oh, it's crazy. Before. I never, I never saw anything like this. The one time, I, I'm not going to name name the comic, but, but literally, it rhymes with. <laughs> <laughs> he, I've never seen this in my life. I brought in this great girl, and she had a friend, and we walk in. I literally am ordering a drink. I turn around. Her friend is gone. This comic is gone. And she's like, where's my friend? I go, I, I don't know. I th think she took off with my friend, my the other comic. They come back in 30 minutes later, and he told me, he's like, yeah, I fucked her in the alley. On Mineta, Mineta Lane. That's where, that's where all the guys used to go. But how did he accomplish <laughs> that in seconds? I've never seen it in my... He said, he said it was instantaneous. I guess, I don't know, when you throw it out, some... Looking back now, I think it was always a numbers game with those guys. It's like if I ask 10 girls, do you want to fuck? One of them is going to say yes. And I, I, I saw it constantly on a nightly basis. It was crazy. I've never seen anything like it in my life. To this day, I haven't. Tell our audience, besides that, the craziest, holy shit, I can't believe this girl is here and there are so many comics fighting to sleep with her. It's like a reality show competition and tell us something that happened. Uh, there was one time at the cellar, it was at the cellar, um, this girl, she was like a playboy. Um, she wasn't like the center, she was a chicken playboy, whatever. And uh, I mean, everybody was taking shots at her, everybody. All the black comics, everybody was taking shots at her. And I was, I was at the bar and I was just kind of like assuming she was going to, Go home with Godfrey already. I'm telling you, and this happened so many times. Girls would come into the comedy cellar, be like, this chick's fucking smoking. And I'm telling you, eight times out of ten, they go, is Artie here tonight? You're like, fuck! <laughs> We'd all just look at each other like, son of a bitch, this guy's great. Um, but everybody took runs at this chick, and um, and then we got talking, and I ended up going back with her that night. It was, it was like one of those, like, and I think it was like Colin... 
Colin Quinn had this great joke of like, you ever, you ever with a woman that's so beautiful, you want to, you almost want to scar her so no one else can enjoy. Her. <laughs> it was like one of those where it's like she was stunning. I had no right being in the same room with her. Absolutely. I mean, when she took her clothes, I was, I was like the guy that wants to keep my shirt on at the pool. I want to keep my shirt on. I was just like, I want to sue my parents. This is, I can't believe that we're both the same species. Stunning to this day. I, you know, that's one for the files. Up top. <laughs> so I have this theory that the comedian that maximizes his hours of the day mm-hmm. working on his craft is the one that's going to pass the comedian that spends his days and nights till six in the morning chasing pussy. Right. Yeah. And if you could spend that working time mm-hmm. on your act, the person is going to be working that and not chasing the girls is the one that's going to pass the people that are chasing them. So in your mind, when I say that, hover over your career as opposed to being biased, who are some of the people that you feel passed some of the people doing that at that time who were just laser focused on their career and you saw them? Yeah. Um, By the way, you're completely correct in everything you're saying. And I I caught on to your theory. <laughs> um, I told you this theory once. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think once I hit 30, that's when I was like, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. Really, you know, if this is the career, then let's go for it. And and, and ironically, 32 is when I met my wife. So um, I, I shut it down pretty quickly. But in terms of those years in New York City, who did I see that just that was that wasn't chasing girls, that was just laser focused? Bill Burr comes to mind uh, right away. Uh, Burbiglia comes to mind right away um i i'd say norton he he's a complicated guy so i don't know what he was chasing but um but uh, you know like bill burr for example is somebody i always looked up to when i was a comic coming up in new york because he was so like burn and, and norton they were their voice was so defined and so distinct and they were so opinionated on and off stage that there's some guys that perform on stage and that's a performance. And then there's other guys on stage that whether you're talking to them in the car at the airport, or if they're on stage, they have that same outlook on life that blends humor and honesty and intelligence. And the burn Norton always had that for me where I was just like, God, these guys are so good. And they're just, they're just natural comics on and off stage. And, um, Burr is somebody that was always hustling, always working on his craft. I never saw him chasing girls. He was just, he was in the zone. At Once it was 8 o'clock at night, it, it didn't matter what else was going on in the world. I think he just was determined to get on stage and, and do a great job. And Kevin Hart's another one. Kevin Hart, I, I remember he used to drive from Philly, and he would beg, beg the guys at Stand New York when I was sweeping floors for spots to get up on stage, and he couldn't even get up. But he was there every night. And he was making the rounds. He made the rounds every night to all the clubs. He was always hustling. So when you see him now, all these Twitter followers and Instagram and all that stuff, it's just like, of course that was going to happen. Absolutely. Now, we worked on something that was really groundbreaking. That was an idea that I think I originally had in my mind for somebody who I thought could really execute it well Mm -hmm. and I held the idea inside for a long time Mm -hmm. and when I met you I knew that you were the guy that was 
going to pull it off. And again, it was early on, so this was a time when it wasn't easy to film things. They cost a lot of money to do things and put things together. But I had this idea for an extraordinary comic to do an enormous amount of shows in one night yeah. and film it. <clears throat> and to this day, even though it's rough, that's one of the things I think I'm most proud of is oh, that wow. thing that you did, 13 or bucks. Yeah, thank you was, so much. That's a, an enormous compliment coming from you, too. The concept was, what's the most amount of shows a comedian could do in one night? Yeah. And mix up their material and put things together and show your different side of you in different places, but also show how a certain joke would work in different places and Which how happened. it died in certain places and it did great in other places. And I thought that was a really cool idea. And to this day, I don't think anybody's ever done the idea again. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it it was, you know, the goal, the, the the record at the time was 12 by David Tell. And it's like, all right, let's try to get 13. And I remember we were, when we were planning, it's like, we're not going to get 13 because there's going to be a cab that doesn't come or a show's going to run late. Something's going to mess up and we'll tie the record, maybe. And then that night, everything worked out perfectly the timing of everything. You did your 15-minute set, you had 15 minutes to get to the next set, you'd walk outside, and there was a cab right there. Sometimes you walk out of Gotham, there was never a cab there, and you'd have to walk up three more blocks to 23rd and 6th and get a cab there. It just all worked seamlessly. Not only that, we had to t take two cabs because we had me and a camera and then the, uh, the the crew in the other, and it just worked out. But yeah, I remember, I remember bombing upstairs at the Ha Ha Cafe or the Ha Cafe and then killing downstairs with the same exact set. And it was literally upstairs and downstairs. It was night and day. But it was a great way for people to experience what a night in the life of a stand-up comedian was, especially at that time when you could do seven, eight sets a night, which was the norm for me. I was just so gung-ho on getting up on stage every night. But it was it was great also to to like look back and see Robert Kelly, Bill Burr, and Dove Davidoff. We had that round table talking about what it's like to be a young comic. And there's a lot of things that were said in it that, that came to fruition, especially for Bill Burr. He had hair in it. And Bobby Kelly was skinny. <laughs> that's how long ago this was. <laughs> that is a long time ago. <laughs> and that's on YouTube, actually, yeah. 13 or bus, so people yeah. can watch it. And, and to this day, I always get young comics going, that's why I moved to New York City. I was like, oh, that's fucking, that's like the greatest compliment. It's great. Tell me about your process as a comic in this competitive world and writing. And like you said, after you did that half hour, it's like, oh, I got to write. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a different process. What's your process for being competitive in this business, knowing that there's a lot of different voices out there? Yeah. And you have to break through and make your mark. Yeah, it, it's extremely competitive now because now I'm one of the older guys, you know, whereas for years I was I was the young guy looking, you know, grass is always greener. And now I'm more of a veteran now. Um, so the, the challenge is to stay relevant. And, you know, even the hour, the landscape of the hour special, as you know, it, it's they're not special anymore because it seems like, the hour special is the new half hour. Um, it's really difficult to churn out the material and stay relevant because for me, it takes about two, two and a half years from day one blank notebook until the day I'm filming it. Um, 
and it seems like like there's certain comics like that that just bang them out every year, and it's just like this is crazy. How do you and and they're very they're very popular, but as a comic, and I think in in the comic community, there's a bunch of us that are saying, you know, why is this happening? Like, why are I, I, look, you also want to take a cash grab, I guess, too. But I think as an artist, if you're thinking about the long haul of it all, then why wouldn't you want to put out one great special that took you three years as opposed to two mediocre ones that had a, a rock in 20 minutes and the other 40 was filler? So for me personally, I just like to take my time with it. I really craft it. I, I'm 45 weeks on on the road a year, and I think that I'm not performing for the hometown crowd all the time in LA. I'm a visitor down South. I'm a visitor, you know, in these different markets. So I'm not, you know, like Bill Maher knows his audience. He's going to placate that audience. But for me, I'll go anywhere into any market in any environment. And again, try to entertain the hell out of those people. So for me, my process is I sit down and it took me this last special where I, I understood if you write some sort of thesis and try to prove that, that's what I'm trying to do over the course of of the hour. Um, so this last one, it was like, I have these two children. What are some lessons I want to instill upon them or teach them? But also, what is somebody who's 22 that's going to be watching some guy who's 40 years old? Why would he relate to me? So the way I constructed it was, here are some life lessons I've learned for a guy who's 20 years old and my children. And these are some things you should think about as you go through life. So, you know, like never fight a guy in a bar who's over the age of 35 because a young guy's in a bar to have fun and chase ass, but a guy who's 35 or older, he's in a bar because he's angry. You know, so it's like all these, the minute I started thinking about it, the writing started coming so much easier. And I think it's just like writing a story. Once you find what the story is in terms of a feature or television show, once you know the story, the jokes come, the writing comes. It's just always cracking the story. That's the hardest thing. And I think I've I've applied the years on Sullivan and Son that I had into my stand-up. And it's only made me a better writer because I was always a better performer younger, but writing was shit but now i've i've definitely concentrated a lot more on the writing hey everybody i am really really excited we have a new sponsor aqua true this is the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology i know it sounds complicated but let's put it this way this is something that can take your tap water and can turn it into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You're going to be enjoying the best water, the safest water. And if you haven't read all the news about Flint, Michigan, in every single state, there's over 100 chemicals found in tap water that are not even regulated by the EPA. Many of them are cancer-causing and have lead in them. So... You can go to a special website that we've set up called industrystandardwater.com. It takes you directly to the AquaTrue site. And if you get this product, you're going to get $100 off. Just type in 100 in the special code section. You'll get that money off and you'll start saving. You can put a whole huge bottle of Diet Coke in this machine. And 10 minutes later, it'll come out 
with the best tasting water you've ever had. I got one of these products. It was unbelievable. Industrystandardwater.com. And you'll be enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever tasted. Let's go way, 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 way back. Okay. Where'd you grow up? What was the dynamic of your family, which I'm sure millions of people know, but maybe there's people in our audience that don't know. Thousands. And what was your first inspiration to getting into this crazy business? Um, well, I grew up in Freehold. I was born in Freehold, New Jersey. My mother's Korean. My father's Irish. They met when he was in the service, which is how most Asian mixed couples go. It's always, you know, a white guy or black guy that was serving that's overseas or a Latin guy. Um, and they met, they dated. Um, he finished up his uh, service with the army. They moved to Minnesota, I think, for a year. And then they moved to New Jersey. And I was born... I think two years after they got married and uh, my brother came three years after me and then we moved to Pittsburgh when I was around seven, I think. So I've always considered Pittsburgh my hometown. Um, I have deep affinity for the city, um, but my folks were great. They were always supportive and in high school, I was always getting up at the pep rallies and goofing off and joking around. Um, but the one thing I noticed that I was talking about this with somebody the other day is I was always friends with everybody in high school, but I never had a click. And I'll never forget graduation. Everybody was taking pictures with their clicks. And I was like, oh, shit, I, I don't have a great core of friends. I was always just kind of on my own. And um, I think that's why I enjoyed being stand-up. I enjoy being a stand-up, too, is because there's so much downtime by yourself it really is a profession of solitude where you're always by yourself on the road constantly so looking back at that moment when i was in high school i was like i'm my personality is suited for the role of stand-up um in terms of i guess being a loner and being by myself quite a bit and even in new york city all those years in new york city i saw those guys every night and they're all friends of mine but they weren't like friends you know they weren't like best friends to me they weren't like guys i would lean on or you know if i was going through a tough time i wouldn't pick up and say hey i got a vent it was just like these are guys i see every night we're going to try to get laid so even those years in new york and la i never really had great friends i was just kind of by myself which is kind of weird but that's what stand-up is it's being by yourself constantly and you're in your thoughts in thinking about jokes that's why that was great at the beginning of Chappelle's special when he's sitting there and he's talking about the stare i was like that's fucking it. I've never seen anybody dress it that way, but you just get lost sometimes in your observations and you got to write that down. Um, but my father got transferred to New York City. Um, I said, can I crash on your couch for two or three months? I finished university at Kent State. He said, of course. So the first day I got there, I started on 86 in Broadway. I had a shitty little resume from restaurants I worked at in college and I went into every restaurant all down until I got to 50th and Broadway. I walked into Caroline's Comedy Club. The manager happened to be there. I remember his name was Brian. He was so nice. He goes, what are you looking to do? I said, I will do anything. He goes, fill out this resume, come back tomorrow. I was answering phones. I was sweeping the floors and I was watching stand-up. And I was like, that's the fucking shit. I want to do that. That looks like fun. So four months later, September 30th, 1997, I remember the day, I got up at Stand-Up New York and went up and 
it just everything clicked everything worked and the minute i walked off stage i was i was crying i was emotional my brother came out he goes uh why are you crying are you okay i go i'm doing this the rest of my life i don't care if i ever make a dime that's what i'm doing and ever since that day i was just like i'm pursuing this to the nth degree what did you do to prepare to write the material for that first show what did you have oh garbage garbage material just shitty jokes i don't even remember the jokes i know i have a videotape somewhere of the first time but it's it is fucking awful but i remember i remember for two days before it i was i would just sit in the mirror and look at myself and say these jokes over and over again over and over again because you know i i knew what five minutes was after watching all the young comics uh, Andy Engel would do that new talent showcase at Caroline's and I was like okay I think I know how to do this I, I think I could figure it out so went up did it and then thank God the first time went great because I think if I bombed I probably would have been scared like most people that try it once and then they walk away but uh, the next five times I went up I bombed so the next five times I was just trying to get back can I do that again because I did it once I got to try to replicate that Again, and I always thought it was so odd sometimes how I talk to people and they say, I tried stand-up once and I, I bombed and I just didn't do it again. Once you do it for the first time, that's the hardest time you'll ever do stand-up. Whether you do The Tonight Show, whether you do a gala, whether you do an hour special, the hardest, most difficult time you're ever going to do stand-up is the very first time because you have no fucking clue what you're doing. And once that first time is done... It, yeah, it's a learning process, but it'll never be as confusing as that first one. So then take us through what happened in the next few months and years to where the point happened where, again, you say to yourself, here's my resignation, and this is the last time that I'm ever doing anything for money except stand-up comedy. Oh, gosh. I was working at a Greek restaurant called the Aegean on 72nd and Columbus. And I was moonlighting, doing stand-up at night. And then um, I started working with Kate McGill. Sophie K. Sophie K Entertainment, yeah. She took me on. And um, I started doing colleges um, within, I think, a year and a half. And this is the strangest thing for anybody listening who doesn't know this and comedians. The college market is probably one step above the cruise ship market. Yes. But what happens is they pay money that you're never used to as a young comic. The least amount of money you made back then was $750 minus your commission. Yeah. And the college agents took 20% commission as opposed to regular agents to take 10. Don't get me wrong. The regular agencies had certain college divisions and they took 10, but they weren't as intensely laser focused mm -hmm. on the colleges as these mom and pop sort of organizations that stuck and just did comedy and different entertainment in colleges. So what they do is they'd find young comedians to do this area of the National Association of College Activities, <laughs> NACA. Yeah. They'd find great comics who could do 20 minutes mm -hmm. and kill because the showcases, if you got them, you'd have to pay your airfare, your hotel, mm -hmm. everything. These agencies weren't doing that. And you would showcase and then they would choose if they wanted you for their college and they put these block booking things together. They had this thing called Club 750 for the young comics. Mm -hmm. One isolated date was 750. Two dates in three days might have been 650. 
four dates in five days might have been 500 but for a comic who's sweeping the floors and doing open mic nights the thought of getting 750 or even 500 dollars or even 300 dollars yeah is like sign me up yes so that's the good news the bad news is you do the showcase you kill you get 100 dates and you're like wow i am going to be loaded and then you realize you have 23 minutes of material <laughs> and you have to figure out a way to get an hour together yeah. that's going to kill in front of these people hence the rally monkey <laughs> <laughs> too true that is so spot on by the way um yeah that was that it was tough because you're like oh shit now i got to do an hour it's like an hour and that's when you learn to do crowd work you know you you just start doing crowd work and uh i remember i put on a hundred and sixty eight thousand miles in one year on this used Saturn I bought um, that first year I was doing colleges and I just I just worked the road. I was living in New York City, but there were times where I was sleeping in my car. Um, and I have this memory of doing those colleges and you know, you get paid in checks and they get sent to the agency. So I didn't, you know, until I cashed it, like I didn't have any money on me. And I remember sh sneaking onto a college campus, driving from one college to the other college, Sneaking on this college campus, taking a shower in the gym, pretend I, I always looked like a young college student, you know, back then when I was doing this stuff. So I just walked in, took a shower. I couldn't afford a hotel and I slept in my car. And I remember, I, I really remember this memory. The, I laid the backseat of the Saturn down. I was looking out the like rear view window. It's like this shitty hatchback of the Saturn. And I was like, this is fucking great. Like, I'm broke. I'm staring at the stars. I'm going to perform tomorrow. And if I keep doing this, I know it's only going to get better. And I just remember that memory. And there's times when like I got Sullivan and son on the air or I did the tonight show for the first time. And that memory came in my head and it was like, I'm so glad I had that memory. The, it, the, the early years of being a standup are so romantic because it's all about dreaming about what's going to happen tomorrow. And that there's just no better gig in the world than to think, fuck, one day maybe I could do the Tonight Show or maybe I could have my own show. This is so fucking, and, and it's all possible because I go on stage and I tell jokes for a living. Quote, unquote, now, for now, you know, because you don't know if you're going to keep doing it, but that was the best, just dreaming and getting romantic and thinking about all the things you that could come to fruition. And I just remember distinctly that memory while doing colleges. The incredible thing about the college market is when you're starting, he's sleeping in his car because a lot of the college agents, for some reason, they didn't negotiate the hotel, mm -hmm. they didn't negotiate the travel. They're just trying to get the dates in the books. And sometimes what they do is they will not put the hotel in and they'll give the money to the artist instead or try mm -hmm. to figure out ways like that. But when Steve started doing the colleges, after his showcases, let's say he got 50 dates for the year and he's going around, but he has no money to do anything at first, but he knows at the end of that year, there's a payoff. And what's odd for a college comic when they come back off that college tour, a lot of them have $40,000 in the bank. Some yeah. have $100,000 in the bank after having nothing. Yeah. And then you come back in the city 
and you go into these rooms and you've been doing hours on the road and you walk in and people are like, what the hell happened to this guy? How did he get so great? And why is he so confident? Mm -hmm. He's confident because he has $47,000 in the bank now. He has a nicer apartment that he just got. Mm -hmm. And he's confident in his material because he's been out over and over and over again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that first year or two, I, I remember my first two years was strictly colleges and little road gigs. And out of that hour I'd built up, I had a good five minutes and I I passed at the cellar. And once I passed at the cellar, all the other clubs fell in line. Comic Strip was next, Gotham, Stand Up New York, they all had me on. And then... Not only was I doing colleges, but I'm doing seven or eight shows a night when I'm in the city. And I'm like, fuck, I'm, I'm making money. This is great. I didn't save any of it like a young single moron. I was going out every night and I was having it. I was, you know, going to the shop, getting cool shoes and getting a nice jacket and, you know, peacocking around the city for a little bit. But, um, you know, it, it was it was it was a really exciting time. It was a great time, and I could I I was literally I got to a point where I was just I was paying my rent just doing clubs in the city, and that was that was great. And I I still had extra, and you know, then you pick up the colleges, and it was it was fucking great. I mean, kid who's like twenty six, twenty seven, fucking awesome. So take us through the next step of your career, and what was your first big break in show business? My first big break. You know what's crazy? I remember um, getting a phone call from you outside of Dangerfields. And you said, you got Variety's top 10 comics to watch. I was like, what's Variety? <laughs> That's how like out of the loop I was. I didn't know anything about the industry or the trades or any of that stuff. I was like, oh, okay, I guess that's kind of cool. Thanks. No clue the significance of it. And I'm in New York. And I think that was like the first, maybe second time I ever came out to L.A., and it's at the Laugh Factory. It was B.J. Novak, Swartzen, Judah, Free, Judah Freelander, um, I think Lonnie Love. I don't, I, there was a few other great comics on, but it's like looking back on that, that was definitely my first big break in terms of like being introduced to the industry and um, and hopefully garnering some chances out of it. And I remember I did that showcase and I got the late late show with Craig Kilborn, my first like legit late night set. So that was the first kind of like break where all those sets all the all the time I was working in New York City it started paying off you know and believe me look as as much as I was going out and I was trying to meet girls and stuff I was very committed I never missed I never missed a set I worked Christmas Eve I worked Christmas I worked New Year's I worked all the holidays if Chappelle came in and did two and a half hours all the other comics would leave I always stayed because to me the sets were paramount if I could meet a girl afterwards great but I was just always zoned in and making sure to maximize my time in New York City and get up as much as possible. Why do you think it was that when Chappelle walked in Mm -hmm. and bumped everybody and did two and a half hours, nobody seemed pissed off, nobody seemed upset, but when other comedians came on (laughs) and bumped people, they were furious. Well, I think, A, it's because Dave is Dave. Uh, I think every comic, I've never heard a bad word about Dave Chappelle from any comic I've ever come across. Dave is a really loving, great guy. And at the time when he was coming in bumping, he's on the biggest show in comedy. Chappelle's show is 
it, it was huge. It was, you know, I mean, I think we're so far removed from, but they still play that show on Comedy Central. And how many years has it been off the air? That that that's how significant the impact of that show was. I mean, I remember *A Living Color*, huge impact. *Chappelle Show*, huge impact. Um, but he come in and nobody really. Everybody's just like, yeah, he's one of the best. Sit back and and learn, and that's what I did. I'd, I'd sit back and he was jazz. He's just he's jazz. He still does the jazz comedy sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crack open the c- cigarette, take his time. He's so confident. It was just like I don't know. The seller, as much as um, you know, you're there to work. Especially when I was younger, that's my real university. That was my college. That was my education in comedy. Watching everybody and then having to follow those guys too. Now I have the comedy club right around the corner. The Boston, Boston, yeah. Comedy hey, club. I still went. <laughs> <laughs> there were eight comedy clubs in the city. Yep. What was it about the comedy cellar? When I opened my comedy club, I wanted to have a place where people would hang out, where it was interesting, where I could book a lot of comics that weren't getting up at the comedy cellar. And I knew once I started using them, the comedy cellar would use them. Yeah. Which would always happen. But it's normal. That's the way it is. You're competitive. Chappelle started at my club. Mm -hmm. Of course he's going to go over. Jay Moore. Yeah. but when they started somebody, sometimes they weren't so happy when Wait, they yeah, came yeah. over to my place. But if you were building a comedy club yeah. from scratch and you had an investor, there is nothing about this club that you would put <laughs> in the design plan. The ceiling is about maybe six foot nine high. You would hit your head. I would hit my head. Yeah. The stage is a whopping four to five inches. There is only one table with chairs in front of the stage, and then there's a walkway behind it. There is a restaurant upstairs that does not have bathrooms, so every single person that has to go to the bathroom has to walk downstairs, (laughs) down through the comedy club, walk in front of the stage, to bathrooms that remind you of a mobile station from 1977 (laughs) where you literally have to take a key attached to a truck tire to go into them and you walk in and it is old and disgusting. And literally, if you touch anything, you want to clean your hands with surgical wipes. (laughs) Yet... This place, I was there on Monday night, and I'm on a Monday night show, sold out. Yeah. And I'm watching, and something happened, which is an anomaly in comedy anywhere on a Monday night. The host goes on, and he says, I'm going to bring up this last guy. He's really funny. Please welcome. And I'm looking at my watch, and it's 1110. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, this place is packed. They're closing down the show. This is crazy. (laughs) And so the show ends. I go outside, and there is a line of 150 more people going to go into an 1130 show on a Monday night that's sold out. I assure anyone listening, if there is any club in the world (laughs) that can do two shows on a Monday night, yeah. Please tell me and write me because it doesn't exist. Yeah. 
And this is a club, again, similar to Chappelle in nature. No social media presence, really. Yeah. No ability to promote themselves, really. But it's all word of mouth. The knowledge that great comedians love it there. They come in and throughout the years you know that anyone at any time could come in. But they might not. Yeah. And you might see just people you don't know. But that club is a word of mouth example of if you're extraordinary, mm-hmm. if you build it. They will come, yeah, and they will come in droves. Yeah, you're right. Nothing about it should work. It, it, you know, it is a fire trap. It's so <laughs> compact. It's like if there's a everybody's dying in that in that place. If there's a fire. God forbid that that never happens. But it, it you know, it it is crazy. But I think why it works, why the comics love, and I think why the audience like it. It is so compact, and you are right there. You have got to make them laugh, and when you do get them to laugh. The, the laughter in that space is just so trapped. It's so loud. It's great. I, I don't know. It's intoxicating. It really is a great space to do comedy in. I always loved the Boston Comedy Club because... Anne Frank's Comedy Attic, as I used to call it. <laughs> That's, and it was adorned with all those great films that you had worked on. It was really cool. I, I mean, even when you bring it up, I remember... I. I instantly just flashed back to sitting in the back of that room with Joe DeRosa and Pete Holmes waiting to go up on stage after Patrice O'Neill or any of those guys that performed there was great. But the Boston was like, it was work. You had to work. You had to earn the laughs at the Boston. I think, I think it made the set at the cellar that much better because when you'd you know, you go to the Boston, you'd, you'd work on your set. It's like, God, I really fucking got to work on this bit and really craft it. And if it did well in the Boston, it would kill at the cellar. So I always appreciated the Boston because you had to fucking really earn every laugh you got there. I don't think I've ever asked anybody this question. But what was it about the Boston? I always was able to get the greatest comics to work there. They always, even if they were working my club, go to the cellar back and forth. Yeah. And it didn't matter if it was somebody like Ray Romano, who didn't really necessarily fit with the NYU crowd I had. Yeah. Or if it was Chappelle, or if it was Chris Rock stopping by, or what was it about the place that made people want to hang out there and work there knowing that it wasn't the comedy cellar? Yeah. Well, I think that's why comics wanted to go there, because... At the end of the day, we all want to kill when we're on stage, but you also, you have to work on the material. And so the Boston was like the gym. That was where you really got to craft the jokes. And um, for me, I, I, that's why I always respected. I think that's why all the comics went there too, to work. And you didn't have the pressure of performing and you didn't have the pressure of like, this crowd is packed and it sold out and they just saw Chappelle and you got a kill now too whereas at the Boston it's like Chappelle just went up he did his jazz for an hour and it's like now you now it's your turn and you get to work and there's there there just wasn't that pressure I I think put on you nightly at like it was at the cellar to kill and and hold your own what's the transition from being a stand-up comedian and doing late night sets and doing half hour specials and hour specials 
to figuring out the other muscle as an actor and actually getting a job where you get to work on television every week. How did that process happen for you initially booking your first acting jobs? And then how did the process happen of creating and starring and producing your own sitcom? Um, well, you know, auditioning is just a luck of the draw. And you hope to God you land something. And I, for some reason or another, throughout the course of my career, I've never, I've never been acknowledged by the industry. I've never been called in. I never had a development deal. I've never had meetings, quote unquote. I just, for some reason or other, I, I think I've just been kind of like always under the surface. Um, so my experience in terms of auditioning was kind of limited. And every now and then something would click. And I I think the first like real kind of acting thing I got was maybe the middle. Um, I had a bit part on that and I, I remember just auditioning and the guy's like great you got it and I was like oh shit there's no callback he's like no oh, you got it and I was like oh this is cool went shot it for a day it was great it was so so much fun everybody was super friendly but uh that was it and I, I did that and I thought I'd like to do more of that but I just didn't have that many opportunities I guess and uh, to be honest with you I was pretty bad at auditioning um how much did you work on the craft of acting? How many hours a week did you work on it? I took classes. I, I went to Beverly Hills Playhouse when I first got there. A lot of people in the acting world, there's a strange thing. You can gut it out with a guy like Larry Moss and pay top dollar to do these workshops. Or you can go to places like the Beverly Hills Playhouse, which a lot of people feel has this group of actors and actresses that's like the children of the corn. Half of it is acting and half of it is, I think we're part of a group here. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember when I told somebody I was, I was working there, they're like, don't drink the Kool-Aid. I was like, what does that mean? And then slowly you start realizing, yeah, there's a huge, um, uh, an enormous amount of them are involved in Scientology, which I had no idea. But I got along with everybody. I did the work. I wouldn't say that I worked as hard at that as I did at stand-up. And I, I maybe wasn't as passionate about it as I was at stand-up because I've always considered myself a stand-up first. And even when I had the show on the air, I was still doing stand-up. Um, but uh, I remember Vince Vaughn and I used to hike up to the Hollywood sign. Um Every morning. This business is all about relationships. How did a guy who the industry is ignoring and a guy who's a loner who doesn't have any <laughs> friends hike a canyon with Vince Vaughn? Well, um, I just moved to L.A. and Ahmed, Ahmed, Ahmed and I were pretty tight at the time. Uh, still are, obviously, but I, I just met Ahmed. For, and we'd been friends for like a year, and he was like my first genuine friend in Los Angeles. Um and we'd hang out and Vince had just done the Wild West comedy documentary and they were doing some follow-up shows and John Caparillo got sick and he couldn't do it. So they called me, Vince said, Hey, Ahmed, who do you know that could come from the store? That, that, that's great. He's like, this guy Byrne just moved here. He's from New York. And so I go up, we're at the Mandalay Bay uh, casino in Vegas and it's uh, New Year's Eve and Vince puts me up first. I didn't. I didn't even meet him yet. And you're getting introduced by him. Yeah. And Jennifer Aniston's in the front row, and I'm like, oh my god, please, God, let this go well. <laughs> Vince is not a stand-up comedian. Now, however, when you're a star, 
and you have a wit about you, people want to hear you and they want to laugh hard at you. Yeah. So even though he wasn't a traditional stand-up comic, he did go up and do well. Yeah. And here's Steve, who is going on after a huge movie star. (laughs) Yeah, but again, I think years of being at the cellar prepared me for that moment. I'll never forget this, okay? This is the... This was the night where I never cared who I had to follow. Godfrey was hosting at the Comedy Cellar, okay? And so uh, Chris Rock comes in and Godfrey introduced... And I, I, I kept getting bumped. So like Chris Rock comes in and the audience is going crazy. It's like Tuesday night, right? So he, go, he goes... Godfrey goes back up after Rock's done and he goes, guys, you're never going to believe this. Rob Williams just came in. He's going to come up. The place is going nuts. It's Tuesday, Seinfeld comes in after Ron Williams. This audience is losing their mind. Uh, they're going nuts. Chappelle comes in. <laughs> the audience is like, what the fuck is going on? This show is 10 bucks. This is great. Godfrey goes, ladies and gentlemen, I swear to God, you're not going to believe this. Eddie Murphy. And the place is fucking losing their mind. He goes, nah, I'm just kidding. Steve Burr. <laughs> I go, you motherfucker. It was like, I'll never have to follow anything as stacked as that lineup. I'll never forget it to this day. So at the time I was doing this Beecher's Madhouse shows in Vegas, which is like Beecher, Jeff Beecher had this show in New York City called Beecher's Comedy Madhouse. He's like something out of vaudeville in the 2000s. I mean, he's an updated version. It's sensationalism entertainment to the 100th power. He's like a Broadway Danny Rose... (laughs) But he knows, but he's like, he's dressed, he's cool, you know, he's friends with Paris Hilton and Britney Spears and NSYNC and everybody's coming to his shows. And uh, so Bobby Kelly and I would always do these shows and we would just do great. We'd do really well because it was a young, energetic, club scene kind of like vibe. But there's half naked girls, there's little people There's little people dressed as like celebrities. It's always like mini Katy Perry or mini Trump or whatever it is this day. Uh, Like 60 go-go dancers in the audience, on stage, in the balcony. It's it's fucking, it's crazy. Um, So I'd been doing these shows and I was just used to performing in front of 1500 people so I, I had some little tricks in my bag and I, I, I did it and I got a standing ovation that never happens <laughs> and for a white comic yeah it never really happens and for an Asian comic it's never it never happens. it probably never has happened until that moment <laughs> the only time I think I ever saw a standing ovation of a person opening up a show was Ralphie May in the very early oh, wow, day yeah of last comic standing yeah and he would go on and just Murder. destroy but you're getting off stage you're happy Vince is excited he's talking yeah. to you but I imagine the other comics on the show, including Ahmed Ahmed, who booked you, are like, Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> I booked you. I didn't ask you to embarrass me. Yeah, I think Ahmed was next. And he's like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, like literally after that show, Vince and his producing partner, Peter Billingsley, who uh, was Ahmed's roommate or at the time. Ahmed was living in Pete's house. Uh, we all just became friends because I was friends with Ahmed. And we all just clicked. And so those guys became my best pals. And I always told him, like, I lived for years in New York City. I never had best pals. And, you know, 
to this day. It's, it, it's been great. But we used to hike up this canyon and Vince would go, you know, your opportunities seem limited. Instead of auditioning, why don't you just try to create something for yourself? And I said, well, I never wrote anything. He's like, but you can do it. I was like, well, I don't. He goes, you can do it. And that was the end of the conversation. Six months later, because I'd bought books, I went online, I learned, and then I wrote a a pilot for Sullivan and Son that took place in a diner. And I gave it to him. And I actually read it the other day. It's fucking garbage. But but uh, he said there was enough foundation there to build something on. So I met with a bunch of different showrunners and Rob Long, who had done Cheers for many years. He and I just clicked. He said, you should make this a bar, not a diner. I said, if you want to make it a bar, definitely let's do it. So the guy that wrote on Cheers was in executive produced Cheers. Yeah. And this is what happens when you're a comic. And these days, there's a big shift. 20 years ago or more, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago, comedians would do their sets. Even in Montreal, they get a development deal. And then you'd bring in the showrunners and the showrunners would compete to see who could get on this show and create a show with right. this guy. Sometimes the show was already created and they wouldn't even get the created by credit, but they'd be fighting to get in. Mm-hmm. The past 10 years, it's been a network and showrunner medium on network television, mm-hmm. ABC, CBS, NBC, Fox, not the cable outlets. So in the last 10 years, I can only count one show that's gone four years or is going to go four years with a stand-up comic in the lead. Right. And that is Gerard Carmichael's show that I think of. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been shows that have gone like yours two, three years. There's Whitney that's gone a couple of years. Mm-hmm. There's Christella Alonzo that's gone one year. But only one show has gone four years that I know of. And I could be wrong, mm-hmm. and please correct me. And comics are going to cable where they get more control and they don't have to worry about these things. Right. And so when Rob Long came in to your show, what happened was Steve was open and amenable. Steve could have said, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, hey, pal, I'm the sole creator of the show. Mm -hmm. I did this. And you can come on and work on it if you want as an executive producer. And I'll change it to Mm -hmm. the whatever. Or Steve could say, hey, we're going to work on this together. We're going to rewrite this thing. And we're going to create it together. Mm -hmm. And which one did you do? The latter. That's right. And that's why Steve got on the air. (laughs) Yeah. That's one of the main reasons. Because you need to have that person to help you when you've never done it before. Completely. Absolutely. And so you shoot the pilot. Are you feeling good about that it's going to get picked up or are you nervous? Definitely nervous. Um, Extremely nervous. But again, I'd never done anything like this before in my life. Uh, We wrote it on spec. We sold it. They said, okay, we'll make a pilot. Um, It all happened extremely fast. Even the agency were like, this is one of the rare exceptions. It's gone this quickly. Um, We did the pilot in November and we found out I think just before the holidays or right after the holidays it was going so it took like a month and a half so again you're the executive producer with Rob and Vince so he was in the casting meetings and everything like that Mm -hmm. so now people are coming in and they're auditioning with you yeah Vince and Rob in the room and obviously some other people yeah and 
you know that you have people in the business that you work with a long time. Yeah. You know there's people that you know in the business that are your friends now. Yeah. You know there's people in the business that introduced you to Vince Vaughn. Yep. <laughs> and you know all of those people want a fucking job. Right. How do you handle that? And how do your relationships change after those people don't get the jobs on your show or don't even go get significant guest stars on your show? Yeah, fortunately for me, none of my relationships changed. I think uh, all my friends that I knew were extremely supportive and so happy, you know. But I did try to get as many of my friends on the show as possible, even if it was just a line. Um, but the casting process itself was crazy because... Here I am, I, prior to going out on auditions and bombing, I guess not doing well, and then all of a sudden I'm watching people audition. They're like, what do you think? I'm like, what do I think? I don't fucking know, is what I think. Because I know if I'm out there reading the role for me, I probably wouldn't get the job. But because I wrote it, I got the job. So it's a, that's one of those dynamics of the industry where you're just like, this is kind of fucking weird that... I'm sure if I had auditioned for my own role, I would never have gotten it. But because it says by Rob Long and Steve Byrne, you have to take me, I guess. So the casting process was crazy. I learned a lot about auditioning, watching people audition. What did you learn? Act like you give a shit. Because um, people would come in. Some people were too cool for school. Some people had no idea. Some people were literally reading from the script. It's just like, good God. I mean just prepare a little bit. Um, there were some people that wanted to schmooze a bit more. Um, I, so I just learned, come in, be pleasant, do the do the best you can and get out. Um, that, that That's really it. And throughout the casting process, let's say you're reading with the women and you read with everybody and you have a clear-cut favorite. You love this person mm -hmm. you read with. And then you get back and you sit down with Vince and Rob and they're like, so it's obvious it's this girl, and it's not the girl. Did you ever question the decision that was made based on that? I never questioned their experience because I always was just like, I'm so new to this. I'm trusting in everything you guys are saying. But the one time I differed from everybody was Roy Wood Jr. Roy Wood Jr., who's a correspondent now on The Daily Show. I love him. He's so goddamn funny. And he's somebody that's been banging on doors for years and nobody listened. Nobody opened the door for him. And I saw him at the improv just before. And I was like, I've seen Roy for years on the roads, on the, on the road. I, I, I'm not friends with him. You know, I just always respected his work. So I emailed him off his website and I just said, hey, I got this thing. I'd love for you to come in and read. He came in. He read. It's a horrible audition. Robin Peter Billings like, this is the guy you recommend? Absolutely not. So the next day we're casting it again. I call the casting director, go, bring Roy Wood Jr. in, please, again. And Robin, she was like, but Robin Peter, I was like, I, just bring him in for me, please, okay? So I talked to Roy, I said, here's what you should focus on based on what we've been seeing or whatever. Roy comes in again, has an okay audition. He does okay. And we couldn't find somebody, and then finally they had a third audition. And they don't want to see Roy. But I call the casting director again. I go, bring Roy in, please. She's like, are you? I go, please just bring him in. He comes in. He kills it, okay? He does great. But I remember 
I think Rob, it was Rob Long that was like, I still don't get it. I don't see it. He's too inexperienced. You got one shot at this. And that's the one thing I always heard. You got one shot. You got to put your best opportunity on the table and then worry about everybody else later. Peter was, Peter Billingsley was more like, all right, yeah, if, you, if you're vouching for him, we'll have him test. He comes in, test, does great. He gets the gig. And it was the second episode. Roy had a killer line. And it was written so well. And he nailed it. And um, Rob came up to me afterwards. He goes, you're right. You're right. Roy's great. And uh, I was just so glad I fought for Roy. And now you look at what Roy's done. He's just, you know, that I'm just really proud of him as a friend, you know, to see what he's done. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names and tell okay. me anything that comes to mind. It could be a word, a short sentence, a story. Sure. Anything of that nature. Okay. Kanye West. <laughs> I think I know why you put him on. I opened for him. <laughs> you son of a bitch. I opened for this guy. Oh, this is just when he's about to hit, right? So everybody in New York knows about this guy. He's going to blow up. He's the next big thing. And he and I did Carson Daly together. Last call with Carson Daly in New York. And uh, then I have to open for him the next week at one of those SUNY State University New York shows. Show starts at 8. He's not there. I go up on stage, do my 15 minutes. I come off. They're like, yeah, Kanye's still not here. Can you go out and stretch? I'm like, uh, okay. I go back out and do another 10 minutes. Um, I come on stage. It's like 8.30 and they're like, yeah, he's still not here. Can you go back out again? I'm like, you fucking can't. By the way, this is not my crowd, quote unquote. <laughs> so I go back out. I'm doing seven minutes. I'm in the bleachers. I'm interviewing people. I'm doing crowd work. I'm doing whatever I can to get laughs. I come off. They go, he's still not. I go, go fuck yourself. <laughs> no, I'm not fucking going back out there. Okay. I leave. I get a call the next day. He showed up two and a half hours later. By the way, this is before he's Kanye West. Showed up two and a half. So he always had the swagger, I guess. Two and a half hours late. He did three songs. He got paid eight times what I got paid. <laughs> so that's what I think about when I think of Kanye West. Margaret Cho. Love. I love her. I genuinely have an affection for her because, you know, every every faction or race of stand-up, you know, if you're black, you look up to Pryor. If you're... Latin, you look up to Freddie Prince or Paul Rodriguez or, you know, whoever else. And I think Asian comics, there's only one, and it's Margaret. Margaret was groundbreaking. And Margaret, not only is she super talented, but she's so sweet. And I remember seeing her at the improv one night, and I was so nervous. I just moved to L.A., and I wanted to go up and introduce myself. And I just, I was like, I don't want to bug her. And she came over to me, and she goes, hi, I'm Margaret. I've heard about you. It's a pleasure to meet you. And I was like, oh, my God. And she hugged me. And it was like after that, I was like, fuck, that's like one of the coolest things that's ever happened to me. Conan O'Brien. Huh. I have mixed emotions about Conan only because uh, 
only because uh, we had this show on the air for on Sullivan and Son, and I don't feel that his show was... It's not him personally, I guess, but the show... We couldn't get on any late-night talk shows to support the show, uh, Sullivan and Son. And I thought, well, at the very least, Conan could be kind to us. And I think he had me on before the show premiered, and that was it. I never did the show again. Um, and, I, you know, when I finished, everybody seemed to be happy with it. But for some reason, maybe I rubbed him the wrong way or something. But he just never had me back. So I was always kind of bummed by the fact that he, the show wasn't as supportive as I felt it, it, it could have been. Why do you think you couldn't get in on any late-night talk shows to promote the show? You have high-level publicists. You probably had your own publicist, oh, too. Yeah, yeah. You're paying them three, four $4,000 a month. The network's <laughs> paying the publicist yeah. probably for the show 10000 a month. You're an established stand-up. Vince Vaughn is the executive producer. Yeah. How is it possible that you can't get any press on a late-night talk show? You know what's so funny is so often you hear when things you dream about come to fruition, it's never the way you you envisioned it, you know? And so when I got Sullivan and Son, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I, I got a show. I you know, maybe this will lead to other opportunities, but at the very least, enjoy this. This is amazing. Three seasons on the air of Sullivan and Son. I did one late night talk show appearance, no write-ups, no interviews. I couldn't get on Rogan. I couldn't get on Marin. I couldn't get on Pete Holmes. I couldn't get on anything to promote a show that I was starring over the course of three seasons. The third season, I had a Netflix special uh, coming out and Sullivan and Son within a month of each other and I still couldn't get on anything and um, I remember the publicist I was paying her a fucking mint and uh, I remember at the end of the run she <laughs> I'll never forget this she goes I'm shocked at the lack of interest in you <laughs> <laughs> and I was like you didn't have to say that but I'm glad you said it after you got that goddamn check Um yeah, I, I, I really don't know. I don't know what the factors are, but I will tell you this. No matter how bad it got, no matter how much I was, quote-unquote, ignored, I always took it upon myself of, of saying, what are you doing wrong? It's not them. It's not the industry. Nobody's out to get me. No one's out to ignore me on purpose. It's just, what are you doing yourself, Steve, that, that, that could remedy this situation? And um, What's the answer? I don't know. <laughs> to this day, I don't know. But I've just said to myself, you know what? Just focus on being the best you can be every time you go on stage, genuinely. And uh, the last hour I just did on Showtime, I spent so much time writing this next special that I'm working on. It's more focused on writing, and maybe that's just it. But I, I really, I, I just don't know. Now, if I put my management hat on, and obviously I don't represent you anymore. Yes. The advice I would have given to you is, okay, they're not choosing you for, there could be one of a number of reasons, mm -hmm. but it's definitely got to be one of these reasons. Number one they don't think that you're extraordinary mm -hmm. on the panel. Right. Number two, 
they don't like the show and they don't respect the show. Or number three, they don't feel that your stand-up comedy is at the level that you are. Mm -hmm. In other words, the level that you are is above where they feel that you should be. Mm -hmm. So what I would always say Mm -hmm. if I was representing anybody is that pretend like it's zero zero right now in the lane that you're trying to get in so right now you're trying to establish that you're amazing guest Mm -hmm. so if you can't get on the rogans or the marins Mm -hmm. my suggestion would be hey we're just going to get on everything we can and we're going to show people that you are fucking great on the radio if it's not going to be a late night show then maybe there's a lesser show Mm -hmm. on a lesser platform and i would probably set the person up with experts in consulting on how the tricks of the trade are for certain people to be the way they need to be on those programs it's like one of the things we talked about the very beginning of the podcast Mm -hmm. as a stand-up From the first time you went on, you just had this natural gift, Mm. but there's different muscles to a career. Right. There's the acting, there's hosting, there's radio, Mm -hmm. there's TV paneling, there's stand-up on television, there's writing books, there's writing sitcoms, Mm -hmm. and it's like a triathlon. There's some things you're going to be the best at, and there's some things you're going to be the 10th best at. My feeling was what the publicist and everybody should have told you in the beginning was, okay, we're going to work our way up to it. We're going to do these little appearances here and there. We're going to cut a tape together, and we're going to show people how extraordinary you are. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have helped to, within three years, get you to the point where people would have seen, okay, I understand that he did it. Remember what you said? I did the seller. And every single club started using Yeah, yeah. So all it takes is one of the people who's rising. Mm-hmm. I think there's a process for everything. Vince Vaughn looked at you and said, hey, listen, you can do this. Yeah. You got the books. You did it. Yeah. When the publicity wasn't happening, I think somebody should have taken you aside that first year and said, hey, listen. It's not happening. Study this. Do this. Let's get this. Let's put you on this. And that's how I think things can change for an artist. Yeah, look, I, you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat and pretend like it, it didn't affect me at all. Because it was, it was definitely, you know, I, I remember at the time, just before the third season too, my manager, Matt Schuler at the time, he had left the business. He just was like, I want to produce now. And he, he stopped managing. I was like his main client you know and then he had left levity and then he was on his own and i stayed with him yeah a lot of the clients stayed with levity but i was like you're my guy i'm gonna stick with you and we're gonna see it through we'll we'll see it through together so we did it and then um he left to produce and i remember i i couldn't i couldn't get meetings with anybody to manage me and i had a show on the air it was like and i couldn't get on anything it was it was like i was like Am I Mel Gibson? Did I scream <laughs> something? The good handful, news is you didn't but... call me. <laughs> well, because I would have taken that meeting. And I would have said, Steve, I was wrong. I made mistakes. I'm yeah. sorry. And 
I would be honored to meet with you. Yeah. But I understand why <laughs> you wouldn't call me. Well, I ended up meeting Kara uh, Baker, who's uh-huh, at Avalon. Of and we just clicked again. It was one of those things. I, I, I didn't, I, I wouldn't care where she was. It was just like, she's great. You're a hardworking gal. I respect the hell out of you. Let's do it. And um, she's been great. But, uh, but yeah, that, that was a tough time. And look, I, I'm not going to be one of those people that's going to bellyache and, oh, poor me. It's just like, fuck it. I had a show on the air. I, I can go to the Warner Brothers lot now and those, those little plaques outside of stage 10, it says Sullivan and Son. It's like, that meant more to me because my kids one day, I can bring them to that lot and go, look what dad did. You know, dad's a pretty cool guy. He worked his ass off. Um, so all that other, all the other aesthetics of, of the show and the publicity and all that stuff, it, it was troubling at the time. But look, it, it only made me work harder. It only made me look within myself and say, really really focus in now on, on what is it what it is you're trying to put out there in the world and and Sullivan and Son as much fun as it was it was a throwback sitcom and that was always the goal and we were a summer show on TBS and yeah I, I, I people probably didn't respect the show but we had hard laughs we had great jokes we had a great cast it was fucking fun every night when the tapings ended we always turned the bar into a real bar and we all drank because we never knew we might not be here tomorrow. So for three seasons, we had a blast. And um, uh, yeah, I, I look at again at, at, at Sullivan and Son as like almost another sense of a college education in terms of learning what television is and what it means to have a show on the air and the ins and outs and being an executive producer um, and calling the shots and being a leader and being the face of a show. If I yawned on the set... Well, then why wouldn't anybody else be tired? I was always aware of that. I always wanted to keep things up. Um, but now I'm working on something new that's really significant, that's really personal. And um, I think it's a, a lot more elevated. And I, I look back fondly at the experience and we'll see what happens. Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel, I just remember that was my first like late night set where I was excited. Because Kilborn and I... I wanted to do a show, but Kimmel, I did. That was my second one. I was not prepared for it. I was really green. I don't think I had the material. I think I wrote a joke like two weeks before. I shouldn't have done it. It was live. And I'll never forget Dave Rath before I went out goes, if you are bombing, don't acknowledge it. Have a good set. I'm like, what the fuck? Who says that to somebody before you go out? (laughs) And I went up and I fucking bombed. I ate it. I ate it bad. It It was Jimmy Kimmel live. So it was live back then, you know, and the, and the comedians were in the corner of the of the state is, and you had to play out there. It was really weird, but uh, but look, Jimmy Kimmel. When I think of him, though, I think of that set bombing. But I also think he's so fun to watch. I love him. Jimmy Fallon. He's somebody I want to have a drink with. B E T. Oh God, yeah, my first TV set ever. B E T's Comic View. New, New Orleans, 2,000 people in this theater. This white guy goes up before me and bombs. I go up. I do the Bruce Lee bit, standing ovation. I use that tape to, <laughs> to get me through the next few years. <laughs> the U.S. troops. The USO shows I've done, I've done probably 10 tours, are the greatest shows I've ever done personally. Um, the first one I did was with Colin Quinn and Robert Kelly in 2004 at the height of the Iraq war. My brother was stationed at Camp Victory North and I got to not only perform for the troops, perform for my brother and my brother got to spend the day with us. 
uh, going to all the different camps. We had like five shows that day. And ever since that experience, I was just hooked. I was like, I'm, go- I'm going to do this once a year. And I- I've done it um, almost once a year, every year since then. Mariah Carey. Oh. <laughs> I opened for her for, <laughs> for a summer. And I took the gig. I lost money doing it because they didn't pay shit. They didn't pay for travel. But I was like, when else am I going to have the experience of performing in front of 15,000 people? And I wanted to learn the pacing of performing in front of 15,000 people. It's a much di- It's almost like you're screaming underwater. That's what it, performing in front of those people feels like. But uh, never matter. I, I, I opened for like 10 shows and I never met her. So I don't know what she's like, but it was a great experience. Let's say after you do your fifth show. Yeah. Wouldn't it behoove you to go up to the stage manager or the producer and mm-hmm. say, would you mind if I met Mariah? Yeah, her handler, the guy like that was her manager, I guess, at the time that was in charge of me. Um, I said, you know, at some point, could I thank Mariah for having me along? He said, oh, we'll we'll figure that out. And then he never figured it out and he just kept putting it off. And I just assumed, well, you know, she doesn't want to meet me. That's fine. But I before at my, at my last show, I wrote her this really nice card thanking her for the experience. And I gave it to her and it was like all these butterflies in it and stuff that I found at the Hallmark store because I think she likes butterflies or something. I don't know. It was like all over the decor and everything, uh, uh, the set decks and stuff. And um, never heard from her, you know, so. But great experience. Bill Burr. I love Bill Burr. I generally, he is the guy that when I started in New York, I always looked up to. In, in terms of like, that's what you want to ascend to, developing a voice as strong as his. Vince Vaughn. Oh, God. Um, I love him, and I would just say I wish everybody had a friend like Vince Vaughn because he's not just a friend. He's an A-list movie star, and he... You call me from the road or on a, on a, on a film set, and for forty five minutes, just ask me about my day, and then it's just like, well, how's the film going? Yeah, it's okay. Now, um, where are you performing? Like, what's it, what's the city like? What are what are you doing? And it'll, it, it just like, you have so many cool things you could be telling me, but you don't want to. You just want to know about a comic that's performing in a mall in Dayton, Ohio, and he finds it in. I don't know, but nobody. No one will push you harder or inspire you more than Vince Vaughn. He, he is a giver. He just has been in this industry for so long, and he has a very finite, definitive way of doing the, the math on a situation and understanding the clearest point from A to Z. And um, he's incredibly gifted. If any, if any of my friends that weren't stand-up, or anybody I've met in my life could naturally just go up on stage and do a stand-up routine, it'd be Vince. He is so fucking quick. I've never seen anybody quicker. And look, you and I have been around a thousand quick people. I've never seen anybody as quick on the draw as Vince Vaughn. Dane Cook. Dane Cook. Well, this is an interesting one. Um, To give the audience some backstory, I represented Dane for about almost 20 years and I represented Steve for probably (laughs) five to seven years. Yeah. And I represented them both simultaneously. Yeah. Um, Dane, when I first moved to LA, 
Dane, and, and look, you got to remember the time period. This is when Dane is a rock star. I mean, Dane is the shit, and deservedly so. Killing, he's the biggest name in comedy, and no matter what you think of him, he earned everything he ever got. Um, I, I actually, I, well, just to plow through, he accused me of stealing his essence, um, which I thought was very odd, and I said, hey, can I come over and we'll just hash it out? And I went over to his place and thought, we'll just talk this out. And he said, you know, I feel like you're stealing my essence. And I was like, I have no idea what that means because I'm not trying to be a knockoff of somebody. I'm not trying to emulate anybody. I'm trying to find my own voice in this world. I, I certainly wouldn't want to replicate what you're doing in a worse way. So we basically left agreeing to disagree. Um, and I just thought it was odd. And so when one or two friends asked me what happened with me and Dane, I go, oh, he accused me of stealing his essence. And then that spread amongst the comedy ether, you know, and it became this running kind of gag that I was stealing Dane Cook's essence. So it was weird. It was odd. It was crazy. I think even if I look at tapes back then, I was like, I'm not trying to be like you, Dane. I don't I think maybe younger I was a little more energetic, but I still wasn't, I didn't have his take on observations that he took. I didn't have the fondness of looking back at childhood like he did um, that was a big staple of his act at the time. Um, I didn't have the creativity he, he had as well in terms of the things that he was communicating on stage. But um, it was just odd. And it was, it, at, at the time, I just moved to L.A. and then the biggest comic in the country doesn't like you. And it was just like, this is kind of fucking weird. It was, it, it was a weird thing to process. Um, and then he addressed it on Marin. I went on Marin and addressed it, but I just told what happened. And I told, you know, my recollection of it. And I, I'm not a guy who's going to fabricate anything. I just said, this is the deal. This is what he said to me. I'm stealing his essence. He said, um, he said, I, before I left, I'll never forget this. He and I said this on the Marin's thing, where he said at night I drive up the Hollywood Hills, I look over the city, and he said he, he I remember he closed his eyes and he was breathing in and out and pulsating his fingers like as he's inhaling and exhaling. And he goes, "I give my energy to the city and I get the energy back from the city," and he said, "Maybe it's not your time to be in the city," and I was like, "Whoa, okay, this guy has lost the plot," and I just felt. I, I don't think that it's possible to have a rational conversation with somebody who I felt in saying that could be that irrational. So I left. Um, I was really, really furious about it for a year or two. And there was times where I was like, I'm going to beat the fuck out of Dick. Because <laughs> uh, there was one time at the improv, I was like, I'm going to fucking grab this guy and pull him outside and go, let's, let's fucking have it out. Because he had said some things and then I had said some things. And I remember, I think it was Neil Brennan. He's like, do you think that would change anything? I was like, you're right. And I went home. <laughs> and then uh, years later, you know, as all things pass in time, um, years later, Dane and I actually talked at the improv and he apologized. And instantly it was just water under the bridge. We hugged. And then I think two weeks later, we were playing ice hockey together. <laughs> With who else? Uh, Bill Burr and a bunch <laughs> of other guys. Uh, we were all playing ice hockey. In Burbank. And now I see him. And I look, I have an immense respect for Dane, truly as a comedian, for what he did. So few comics have ascended the heights that he has. Um, you know, there's a part of me that's rooting for him to 
to figure out this certain valley that he's in now and uh, ascend again. Because um, I think you know some comics definitely have a perception of him, but I I think anybody that's that was that fucking huge. I mean, we forget how huge that guy was. He was a legitimate rock star in comedy. Um, Press the button on his computer. Well, sold yeah. out two shows at Madison Square Garden Crazy. and two shows at Boston Garden. I think I, I don't think we've heard the last of Dane Cook. I think he's going to plot something and and make a big comeback. And I, I'd be the first to be curious to see how it all plays out. You know, I'm always rooting for him as well. Yeah, I I, I genuinely like if I saw him right now, I'd give him a hug and be like, "What's up, Dane?" Because look, when I first moved to L.A. and you go to Dublin's. That guy fucking crushed. I mean, crushed. There's very few people that killed that hard, especially back in the, that, that room Dublin's was the hottest room in the country beyond a shadow of a doubt. And all the stars were there and everything. It was a weird one-nighter on Sunset Tuesday, Boulevard yeah. um, across from the comedy store. And um, it was, again, another shitty setup. Yeah. Which was able to be turned into something great, run by a comic by the name of Jay Davis. Yeah. From Torgasm. From Torgasm. And uh and he was he was that was his domain. You know, that was Dane's room. And he fucking slayed. All right, your proudest moment in show business. My proudest moment in show business would have to be I think it was the the first season or second season of Sullivan and Son. My parents who had come out to a few tapings were in the episode and my mom played my mom Rob Long wrote this great thing where my mom has an exchange with my TV mom and there was a moment where they were looking at each other and Jody Long who plays my mom goes you look familiar <laughs> and it was such a great line and people knew because they you know they introduced her as my mom and just seeing uh, you know I, I'm, I'm doing my best not to get emotional but just seeing my mom who had come over from essentially a third world country and worked so hard and through all the taunting and you know when I was playing hockey in high school you know her coming to my hockey games and kids yelling chink and gook and my dad killed your dad in Vietnam like all these horrible things I remember her crying crying after these hockey games like I should have never moved here I'm so sorry I should have never have married your father I'm so sorry for what I did and just like the burden of guilt she had as, as a mother seeing how it affected me at the time and then understanding once you get out of that high school phase, you start appreciating what makes you different and then utilizing your differences in the world of stand-up comedy to me writing a show and my mom's character, a caricature of my mom and father are on a soundstage in Warner Brothers and my mom's on television. It's crazy. And that is the proudest moment I've had in show business, seeing how joyous and elated my mom was that day and my father too absolutely it was, it was fucking best i can get emotional thinking about it, sorry but <laughs> your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level biggest disappointment in show business i i can't say i've ever had a disappointment because no matter any failure i've had has always been a lesson any failure i've had has always been something to get motivated by and i've always been somebody who believes in you know, appreciating, I don't appreciate, I'll put it to you this way. I think success is a graduation of failures. That's the way I've always looked at it. And so I have always, even like when we we're talking a few minutes ago about the, uh, 
lack of press or whatever when I was on Sullivan Son, I was always like, what can you learn from this? How can you be better? How, how can you drive yourself to uh, ascend and, and, and maybe do better work or whatever next time? So, so you make it undeniable for them to not take you in. My favorite word. Yeah. I, I, I truly believe in that. And so um, there isn't one particular thing that I've been disappointed in because I'm disappointed when I tell a joke and it doesn't go well. I'm disappointed when um, I wrote something that I think this is one of the best bits I've ever written, which just happened recently. And it it bombed. It fucking tanked. But as disappointing as it is, it's like, what can you do to make this joke better? And so I'm just, you know, I'm always trying to trying to be better. Last question. What advice do you have for the young comedian who's working with a rally monkey and uh, <laughs> coming out of Pittsburgh and going through situations where her fa- his family is going through racial, you know, taunts and uh not really getting the support you need sweeping floors and and to get to the point of having the kind of career that you're having yeah i would i would just say it, it always gets better if you want it to get better it's all in your mind i think the, those who dwell and get negative and you know shit on people that are more successful or or getting something it's like that's a loser's mentality i think Lose the negativity. Always drive towards positivity. Be be happy for people that are successful. Be happy for that guy that just got that deal or just got that pilot or just got renewed for another season because he knows how hard it is to be a stand-up because you know how hard it is to be a stand-up. So I've always tried to celebrate and enjoy other people's success and hopefully let it fuel me. But in terms of like what I would definitely relate to somebody younger is stay positive and work your fucking ass off because nobody else is going to give it to you. The days of getting discovered, I mean, it's fucking, nobody's, I've, in 20 years of stand-up, I've never seen anybody do a set and get a TV show the next day. And I think that's the pipe dream that every comic has. Write for yourself, create, you know, especially if you're all these people that talk about diversity. Diversity, all, all, all the... All the, you know, this loud platform that, pe- that people are saying, we, we need more diversity in Hollywood. Diversity just means opportunity. And so are you going to create your own opportunities or are you going to wait for the industry to give you the opportunities? The industry is not racist. The industry is not, not wanting to cast black people or Asian people or, you know, we need a black James Bond. It's like we don't need a black James Bond. We need a black individual to write an amazing black spy hero cut from his own cloth that's what i want to see so you know are you going to keep banging on the doors waiting for people to hire you or why not open up your own shop and that's the way i just look at it in terms of diversity and opportunity and positivity (laughs) steve Byrne. today you were a giver thank you so much (laughs) cat i love you i genuinely love you and i i would end my part of the conversation with saying you were an R, but back in that day in New York City at that time period, you had everybody on that roster, fucking rock star manager. And I was like, if I want to be the best, I got to work with the best. And you took me on and you gave me so many pieces of, of advice along the way. And I know we had our ups and downs, but I still have a deep affection for you. And even last time when we saw each other and last night when I saw you, I always, I, I just want to hug you and thank you for being part of this long crazy ride that has been my career you've been a major 
piece of it and you helped me get those first major breaks. So I, I, I do want to thank you very much for that. Oh man, that uh, getting me emotional. That means a lot to me. I appreciate me. it. Thank and you. Thank you so much and I love you and I'm so excited and so proud of your success. Thank you so much, Barry. Thank you. As always, this is an episode of Industry Standard. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> okay, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Robert Wiseman, August 5th, 2017. Oh, recent. Heading is Audio Smack, five stars. And Robert writes, I was recently pointed in the direction of this podcast, and I've been strung out and addicted to it like a dedicated dope fiend. Bravo. All right. Thank you so much, Robert. I love that review. I really appreciate it. Congratulations. You are a winner. Special thanks to our new sponsor, AquaTrue, with the first countertop water purifier using multi-stage reverse osmosis technology. Check it out. Go to industrystandardwater.com. Takes you directly to their website. Type in the code 100. Save yourself $100. I have one of these. It's amazing. Start turning your tap water into the best tasting water. Industrystandardwater.com. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drop that fancy corn. All the people love you, cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamer. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.